Section three of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two Winter Days on Braden. Part two A Rhyme Frost. A spell of sharp frost, with slight snowfalls and a smart wind from the northeast ushered in the year 1894, and for some days the neighbourhood put on one of its old-time aspects, wild birds of various species thronging the coast, inducing many an old sportsman who had not smelt powder for years to indulge once more in the pastime of shooting. The broads were frozen over, and Braden assumed an arctic appearance. On January the 7th, a dense rime frost had scattered the hoarfrost-like ashes over the face of nature. Few persons went to church that day, and fewer still went to look upon Braden, for except near the lower run and in the channel nearer home, it was a vast field of ice. The outlook on the marshes as I strode briskly up the new road was wintry enough to suit the most exacting. There was a strange stillness everywhere, broken only by the merry laughter of some clumsy skaters on the distant ditches. Not a breath of wind rustled among the remnants of last year's reeds which lined the wide ditch on our right, and their few tufted heads hung heavily with the weight of hoarfrost upon them. The ragged willows that then still held up their branches were beautiful now in their garments of white, and the lichens on their gnarled trunks had been touched as if by fairy fingers. A meadow pipit with melancholy cheap fluttered from under the stubbly banks, cheeping again to one of his fellows when he overtook him, as if deploring his want of luck and asking him how many hidden insects he had fallen in with. I cautiously crossed one of the brackish ditches, and the ice pierced here and there by reed stubble bore me safely. Then clambering over a marsh gate and the railway metals, I found myself on Braden walls. A couple of skylarks were snapping off the brittle grass bents beside a frozen marsh puddle, their feathers puffed out for extra warmth. They were certainly happier than a snail-loving thrush that hopped inquisitively up to them, as if to compare notes and ask a favour of them. Larks seldom find themselves dinnerless in the fiercest winter. There are cabbages, anyway, that can always be had for the looking for, and which, besides, provide famous shelter. My boots crisply brushed off the frost dust from the thistle stems, the remnants of the goosefoot, and the clinging wall grasses as I strode along. The tide was near the full and heaved, as if sighing, under the rough mantle of ice upon the bosom of Braden, while the creases in her vesture 
were marked here and there by the swollen drains over which the ice lay thinner and weaker and crackling their sinuous windings were lost in the rimy atmosphere which joined as it were with the grey ice in a close and indistinct horizon range of vision was limited at most to a hundred paces the sun like a disc of naples yellow seemed to be trying to pierce the chilly curtain it looked dully bright as one sees it through smoked glass scarcely a sound broke on the still air save an occasional sharp crackling of ice the weird cry of some bewildered bird and the yet rarer boom of a fowling piece which left one surmising whether a coot or a widgeon or a tufted duck had fallen to or had escaped the shooter a large gull loomed up indistinctly as one sees a noctual bat at eventide it vanished as imperceptibly a chaffinch bright and saucy settled for a moment upon a straggling willow stick thrust out from a broken fish swill adding by his presence the finishing touch to an artistic titbit i could not help admiring the dilapidated basket with its ragged fringe of weed thrown by the tide against a gnarled stake upon which the frost had drawn leaves and foliage of white together with some loose flint stones from the wall in the hollows of which bright orange and yellow lichens were growing formed a background to the picture a fitting tailpiece i thought for any sketch of a frost-bound estuary some footprints upon the whitened surface of the ditch below the walls described to me how that morning some roving spaniel had been out sporting with his master looking more closely at them i observed that they zigzagged in conformity with some tinier spore these dotted imprints and a fine-drawn line between them told how the dog had followed the perambulations of a rat the footprints of the rat suddenly turned at a right angle and ended in the wall the dogs continuing alone a hooded crow had left his broad arrowed claw marks part of the way he too had been searching for a rat but as vainly the thinner trail of a lark and the still finer one of a pipit were also visible on the ice a little way from the walls some crow marks interested me much more greatly one spot was dotted with tiny grey feathers and leading up to them were the imprints of a hoodie's feet a poor little dunlin wounded unto death had flown hither in its death agony from among the host of its companions slain by a merciless gunshot its life's blood ebbed out staining the snowy patch with bright crimson it had died alone on the icy carpet and the little form had stretched wings and legs and stiffened directly not long did it lie there 
for a scouting Kentish crow, prowling around for a breakfast, espied the dead bird. Those claw prints to the right show the spot where he alighted. He walked half a dozen paces, then a confused trampling tells us how he set to work with claws and mandibles and tore to pieces the poor little sandpiper. Bill and foot and wing are all devoured, save the long flight feathers which he hurriedly pulled out and a few smaller ones dropped in his eager haste, for a brother crow may have been ready to rob him. These are all the evidences left of an avine tragedy. Trending a little way from the spot are other footmarks of the crow, leading to where the foul bird took to wing again. A little further on, I notice more bloodstains and a number of other footprints, but in this instance not a feather remained. How was this? Closer attention convinced me that more than one hoodie came to claim the victim. There were ample proofs that there were three. It was very evident, too, that, disturbed at his meal almost as soon as he had discovered it, Crow number 1 had snatched up his prize and hurried away with it, hoping to devour it alone. Among the flint walls I found a fowl. Its bones had been picked clean, and feathers lay scattered about on the stones, among which stricken potchard and widgeon liked to hide when fatally wounded. It had evidently been dragged out, and the wing bones alone remained feathered. Even the muscular portions of the wings had been dragged off and swallowed and by some well-defined teeth marks it was easy to see that the rats had gnawed off what little the careful crows had overlooked the rime frost still hung about thickly when i set off homewards and the tide was falling already some of the flats had drained dry and the ice had settled on them in broken hummocks whose edges pointed at various angles on approaching the north wall drain, I found open water, and the ebb was drawing downstream, flow after flow of broken ice. Now one flow would catch in the mud, stop a moment, and then turning, swing again into the tideway, dashing into another stranded flow with a loud, crackling crash. Then the two flows would go on together, splintering, crackling, and sweeping down towards the channel to continue grating against others coming down with the tide. Now one would catch its edge over another and slide well onto it with a roar, as if at some rough play. Then endways up, it would go and bury itself in the dark waters, coming up under another as if possessed with the spirit of mischief. One huge flow would crash against one of the stakes, shaking it to its foundations in the ooze below, breaking itself in halves, the severed portions joining forces again directly in the eddy. 
and so downward to the sea sped acres of broken ice slabs in a wake among the floating ice swam and dived a poor little dab chick struggling now for its life and forgetting its struggle for a dinner wishing summer days back again no doubt and hours of peace and plenty in the broadland reed clumps a few dunlins were running wonderingly along on the denuded edge of a mud-flat they were hard pressed for food for the mud-worms had sunk lower into the ooze it may be there were some to be found that the moving ice had scooped out and left to freeze in their nakedness one wretched bird whose right leg had been shot away hopped about pitifully probing here and there for a morsel a few black-headed gulls were hanging round the mouth of the bure snatching up fragments floating upon the surface of the sewage polluted water it is about our own noontide and our interesting excursion has ended in days of yore snow was falling one evening in winter when a worn-out old punt-gunner at one time one of the most ardent sportsmen on Braden, sat by my own fireside Braden is done for said he and nothing is truer from an old punt gunner's point of view for the best season in their day was our present close season when a few birds good and rare still drop in among the mud-flats and the days of big shots in the winter time are probably for ever gone for Braden, under its altered conditions, does not harbour them, as it did fifty and sixty years ago. The winters are different, remarked the old man. His opinion is shared by many men, who in their younger days followed Braden, and they will describe in vivid language those days of ice and snow. On further inquiry, and reference also to past records, I am led to believe that extremely severe winters only obtained at intervals, usually of several years, as they have done since I myself have chronicled events, and on consideration when certain winters, for example, 1854-55, 1870-71, have been brought to the old gunner's recollection they have admitted it may have been so be that as it may said pestle you may get a hard winter and you wouldn't get the birds like you used to there ain't the feed and the water is no sooner on the flats than tis off again and if any of em do stop there there ain't enough water for you to get your punt to em they sit and laugh at you fifty year ago i'm speaking of sixty year why a wherry could sail over the flats at high water from wall to wall and some parts what are now dry at less than half ebb were then never free of water even in the sixties old brents the geese 
used to come fifty and sixty in a bunch to Braden in hard weather. We used to get a tremendous lot of pokers or pochards. They used to come in and feed by scores on the poker grass what used to grow against the north side right away from the fleet to Rotten Eye. You could see em pullin' and tuggin' at it, eatin' the little white peas on it. Pokers are the sharpest fowl you ever see. They dove the moment they saw the flash of your powder, and as for getting a wounded one, well, it gave you a sweatin'. They used wings and feet and would sooner drown than let you get em. I once, said Pestle, got a shot at some pokers after a hard row through slub or half-frozen ice, and having collected em, I found it had got so hard I couldn't get back to the channel again. The ice formed on the oars as I paddled. My ice pick was too short to be of any use, but I had my eel pick on a long shaft in the boot. This I laid hold of and chopped and pushed my way out on it. The ice had so gathered on the boat, and what with that, and stock ice rising from below, with the weeds and stuff on it, gave me a pretty good doing to getting hum. I once see the most beautiful white nun, a smooth, you know, secured in the harbour on a piece of floating ice. It couldn't fly, for its feet had got frozen in. Did I often see birds fast like that? Well, no, but it was nothing uncommon to see wounded stints and sich like small buds what had 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 legs broken by shot with one of their feet in a regular ball of ice from dip, dip, dipping them in the water and the water freezing on them. He had often had ice get to leeward of him on the ebb and, being caught and pushed back by the early flood, it had surrounded him, and escape had been impossible but for using his ice-hook, a rather heavier weapon than a boat-hook. He had seen too, as I have, the huge guiding stakes in the channel lifted bodily by the ice clinging around them, drawn as the tide lifted and carried away. Five shillings was the reward given by the river commissioners who claimed them. Sport had been slack for some days on Braden. This was in the seventies. It blowed terrific one day and well into the night, said Pestle. I dropped into the pleasure boat tavern for a game of crib. Coming home late, I noticed the wind had suddenly dropped. I'd got to hear that a tremendous lot of fowl had gone to Braden. So, to my missus's surprise, I put on my things and told her I was going up. I shoved off and pulled against a raging ebb, making for the houseboat then lying near the stun corner. Halfway up Duffel's drain, I stuck in an oar, thinking to have a rest and a course of smoke. And what do you think? To my surprise, on striking a fuse on the breech of the gun, with a terrific whir and whiz, hundreds of fowl took to wing all around me. They'd been quietly feeding. I went to the houseboat and waited till the tide began to lift, 
and then pushed off to see if they'd kind of settled again. By the aid of my glasses, I could see two or three ridges looming up black against the light of the town, and made towards these, putting up several single fowl within almost oars length as I went along, frightening them, of course, by the hissing noise on the sides and bottom of the boat, rubbing against the shells on the grass. I ventured a shot at one of the thick black ridges, and guessing my aim by the elevation of the gun, pulled the trigger. Well, boy, what with the roar of the gun, and the rattle and clamour of their wings and throats, I thought for a minute the world had come to an end. I stuck an oar into the mud, and hung my oily frock onto it to mark the position, and tried to find the fowl, but was baffled by the darkness and tide. Early in the morning, though, I fell in with the fowl I'd shot, which amounted to a score widgeon and mallard. Ah, we used to get big shots sometimes. You see, the birds used to come in such flocks that you couldn't help hitting them. I once saw a tremendous lot of stints, or dunlins, sitting huddled up on a huge floating piece of ice. I had some difficulty in getting to it through the pack as was floating all round, but I did somehow and pulled trigger. I managed to recover 285 on them, and what is more, I got five widgeon at the same shot as was sitting on a hummock a little way behind them. Of course, it weren't easy to get all the cripples, and I didn't. I remember how the Kentish crows chased them as they hopped and fluttered about, them wounded ones. Brutal, you say? Well, them sort of thoughts never used to trouble me. What's the difference between that and calf-sticking? Don't both butchers do it for what they can make out of their slaughter? I can well remember, as a lad let loose from school, how I used to haunt the quayside approaches to Braden, looking curiously into the snow-sprinkled punts, and viewing with wonder the dead fowl lying on the bottom boards, or spread on the foredeck. Ah, boy, said he, I remember getting a shot at a parcel of widgeon, bagging sixteen on em. I laid em on the forepeak, or the covered deck, thinking em all dead. I went ashore to reload my gun, and stood pottering about waiting for another shot. One of the ducks that had laid beneath a heap of others, come too, fully an hour after I shot em, and up on the wing she went. I happened to have my handgun under my arm, and up with it, catching a glimpse of the fowl as it got between me and the moon. I fired and killed it dead. It wasn't nothing new to lose buds after you'd shot em. The cripples fluttered away even in broad daylight, and you couldn't get over the ice arter em. And as for shooting at night, why, we old gunners often used to shoot at the sound of buds we couldn't see, and trusted to luck to hit em and retrieve em. You remember me telling you about how them widgeon hid in the flint wall? 
but them old hooded crows used to annoy me i once shot a mallard that fluttered ashore on the flat with a broken wing and afore i could break through the ice at the edge of it to get to the bud a parcel of hoodies seized it tore out its eyes and had its innards out while still alive i got it however but it weren't saleable the old man chattered on sometimes going over his ground again but to me his yarn was never tiresome and to my mind it was altogether reliable for he and others whom i have interviewed and helped in times of stress have never tried the long bow on me a pipe of tobacco makes them reminiscent and they are tempted to lie only if they do at all when they sent drink pestle was much interested in potchards and he added scalps hardfowl he designated them for as hard as nails himself he had served his time as an artilleryman and as a boat builder he delighted in the snow and frost that brought them south he was emphatic in assuring me pokers and scalps when wounded or hard pressed would dive and hang by their feet to the grass preferring to drown rather than be captured although the probability is that they sometimes got fast unwittingly in the tangle or as likely when in the thick of it submerged themselves having only their bills out of the water for the purpose of breathing he knew the roughs in his younger days then with the frills on said he oh yes i've seen em dancing and capering about on the flats afore now but that was years ago i've shot into bunches of reeves in september probably buds of mixed sexes and ages once at a lot of at least sixty they must have been bred in the eastern counties anyway you never see two old buds coloured alike he once saw a small hawk hanging around Braden, chivian starlings he paid no particular attention to it but describing its appearance and colours to one of the upchers was told to try and secure it why didn't you get it said upcher i'd have given you a tidy bit for it this put pestle on the alert and he observed it next morning just over the walls on the marshes near george's deek he hid himself in the grass and watched the hobby doing its hardest to bag a starling the starlings would open out as it made a swoop for them continually baffling it after a fruitless trial or two some crows dashed in presumably to the help of the starlings to the great discomfiture of the hawk who beat a retreat and was not seen again then the old chap reloading his pipe chuckled another reminisce had come back to him i must be a gone said he but i'll just tell you about old stephen bowles and he laid down his pipe without lighting it one bit of january morning 
just such weather as this i went up to the houseboat i had a shot at a mallard as i went but found on picking it up the shot had ploughed a wide strip clean as if plucked out of the breast feathers of course it weren't saleable so i thought i'd have it for dinner i plucked it and cut it up shoving it in the saucepan for a stew i shoved in an onion and started to pepper it when the lid dropped off the box it was a smacksman's tin one what held two or three ounces of pepper and in it went i felt inclined to chuck the lot overboard but a thought came into my head to have a bit of fun out of it i knowed old stephen bowles was likely to come up so i let it bile and presently through the snow loomed up old stevie cold as he could well be and grumbling about being frozen to the marrow anything warm aboard ax steve stewed duck says i bailing out into a big basin a dollop of duck and gravy what looked almost like duck boiled in ink being persuaded it was all right although of a rum colour steve proceeded to empty the soup down of his neck amid much puffing and blowing and remarking on the heat of it he only finished half the basin and i couldn't persuade him to have more he'd a hung his tongue out like a dog but for fear of being frostbitten he bade me good morning and went on upwards i'll vow said pestle he didn't feel the cold much more that day <laughs> and it was a roaring too and pestle laughed again the joke was rough and ready but quite in keeping with the rough manners and hard life of the men and of Braden. End of section three